Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. Today, I'm speaking to Rory Madden, one of the founders of the UXDX conference series. If you work in developer relations, it's always a good idea to get friendly with conference organizers because trust me, they've seen everything. Given Rory's background in product development, we get deep into the weeds on API design, API version management, and how to make sure you don't lock yourself in to an old, horrible-to-support version of your own API. We also talk about the challenge of building a community when you're a conference. Think about it. Conferences happen once a year. What happens all the rest of the year? Where does the community live? You could do worse than checking out uxdx.com. And you can tell from this podcast, I'm kind of a big fan. Okay, let's talk. Hey, welcome, Rory. Welcome to the Fireside VoxGig podcast. It's great to have you on here today talking about uxdx.com. So first of all, tell us what is uxdx? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Richard. Um, So UXDX is a conference where we focus on the full product team because we think of software development as a kind of a system. And instead of where companies have silos, we break down those silos. So we have product managers, UX researchers, designers and developers all learning how to build better products faster together. This is kind of the state of the art these days, right? You've got to be able to bring all these different people together to, to... Build a um, an acceptable SaaS product, and the quality standard is a lot higher than it used to be, right? Yeah, well, you like to think that, <laughs> you'd like to think that it's the standard today, and and it's it's kind of funny because you you, you ask anybody, and they're they're hundred percent working agile. Everybody will say they're working agile, of course. And then you, of course. Then, then you dig into their actual process of, of what they're doing, and they're like, "Well, of course we have the business case, and we have to sign that off because that's where we get the budget from." And then, of course, we have to kind of stick somewhat to that scope. But we do do sprints, uh, and we 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 break it up into two week cycles, and we run retros. And then, yeah, we can't quite release on our own because it's quite difficult with all of the way the. Our, our system is made. So then we just put it into the bucket to get released later. <laughs> so um, <laughs> like, like that, that's a lot of experience that I've had talking to people, but they're like, no, we're definitely agile because we're doing those sprints in the middle. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we, we, we could definitely dive into the whole agile. Of the, I mean, these days it's, it's, it's kind of like a dirty word really, isn't it? Uh, do you, I mean, you see, a, you see a lot, a lot of, um, different ways of doing things i guess <laughs> out there are two week sprints still the sort of most common we we move to one week sprints i find them much better um yeah i i would say two weeks because in a lot of now for context we're dealing with kind of scaling startups and enterprises would probably be our sweet spot at our conference because by the nature of a startup they're so small they are cross-functional so yeah. people, everybody is working together. The challenge comes when you start growing and getting big, and it's kind of those informal networks start breaking down. So the the risk is that companies go, oh, well, we're big now. How do the big boys do this? And okay, well, let's break it up into our functions, and we'll we'll follow kind kind of strict processes. Um, and that's where you end up with that kind of well, everything has to be a process and we might have a PMO and it might be like mandated exactly that everybody follows this. 
and two week sprints just seems to be the the kind of the industry standard mm. that that we've seen uh we do like then there are the people who are experimenting and there's people who are doing kind of as you said one week sprints there's um kind of shape up i don't know if you've uh you've looked into that but they they kind of go with that advocating for six week sprints because they say you can't really get much tangible done in two weeks um and then there's everything in between as people are experimenting and trying to figure out how do you scale this without resorting to something like safe which um almost mandates waterfall yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> i see i i don't know like what 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 i what i always found with two weeks or longer is that it tends to create cyclical activity where uh there's a mini deadline and everybody's puts in extra hours and then people are exhausted and things kind of reach a low ebb then at the start of the next sprint and also if you've got two weeks to do something you can procrastinate a little bit more and your your processes and your ci cd cd doesn't need to be quite as tight whereas one week kind of forces everything to be well oiled uh and forces everything to be you know, made, made, made into broke down and broke down into really small pieces. I, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I definitely don't want to end up in an agile discussion, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to actually break this into two different things because um, you, you brought it up there. And I, I think people conflate them. And that's actually one of the things that, that we, we try to separate that there's one is the timing and the like, so is it one week? Is it two weeks? What, what's our deadlines? That kind of thing. And that's kind of what I would say the process. And then there's your CICD pipeline. That's your kind of just the things that you need in the, I would say almost the background is kind of the basics of um, what you need to get set up and running. And I, I like to kind of treat them as almost separate things because you should, even if you're doing a two week sprint or a one week sprint, we would still advocate that every commit, like trunk-based development, um, test-driven development almost, sometimes I'm a bit of a, a zealot there, but um, when I've been working in, in projects, that's what I kind of push my my dev teams to implement because I want to be able to release at any point in time and not be restricted by, are we two weeks in one day? Are we like whatever the timeline of the process? So it's kind of, can we get the the workflows in place where we are literally on every commit um, kind of red, green refractor. If the, if trunk goes red, everyone drops tools, jumps on top of it um, to make sure that we're always in a kind of a healthy releasable state. So I, I and then I think just back to the process, it's it's this kind of catch-22 that deadlines are really motivating. They actually are, and it's been proven to show that people do work a little bit harder to hit a deadline. And if you don't have a deadline, things can kind of stretch out. Um, but the negative side of a deadline is if people are cutting corners and introducing tech debt and things like that. So that's where on the kind of process side, what we advocate for is more of the um, kind of at a quarterly level of kind of setting goals, but the team own it. And if the team then decides what they can do to do it, they need to be looking after the pipeline. They need to be looking after the tech debt, because if you're given a goal and you start keeping introducing tech debt, because you're just trying to hit milestones or deadlines the whole time, you're not going to hit next quarters. 
So it's that kind of trying to get that longer term thinking into teams. It's it's a difficult one. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, it's a really deep problem, and, and nobody's really solved it, you know. But I think you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> right, you and you and Catherine's genius was setting up a conference on this very topic that is and that is like one of the most controversial in the software industry that everybody's trying to figure out. Um, I, I mean, I've I've always found I mean, I'm, I'm shilling here, of course. I'm always found uh, the speakers at your conferences to be uh, really great because they are really discussing these critical issues of delivery. Yeah, one of the things on like so just on the the conference and the backgrounds. So as you mentioned, Catherine, her her background is in running like some of the largest conferences in Australia. Um, she she knows conferencing inside out. My background is in software development. Um, so we kind of came together and figured what could we do. And the challenge that I was facing was like I'd I'd learned about agile. I'd learned about kind of my background is. I've been a bit of a developer. I've been a business analyst. I've been a project manager. I've been like, I've kind of done all the different roles mm. testing. Um, but I couldn't figure out how to actually implement it in the companies I was working in because it was always the, as people would say, the cultural problems that would always get in the way of, oh, well, you can't do that or you can't do this. So I was always looking for case studies of who has actually done this and how did they do it? And that's where UXCX came from in a way that we don't invite the same types of speakers you might see at other conferences. There's there's what we call the circuit, um, where you'll see yeah. the same speakers yeah. and they appear at kind of every single conference. And, and they're great and they're fantastic and they have a wealth of experience. But what we're looking for is actually practitioners in companies and how they've done it. So if you look at the agenda of we, we have a conference coming up soon. Um, and if you look at the agenda, you'll see that the the speakers are from big companies and they're like the heads of design or the head of product, chief product officer, the kind of the C CTO and um, people like that, because they're the people who are facing the reality. It's not a consultant who can come in, give some advice and then leave. They're facing the reality, reality of how do I actually implement this? So that's that's our goal is always to get the practitioners and to get real case studies in the um, in the conference, yeah, and I guess that ties into uh, stuff that a, a lot of our audience would be dealing with on a day to day basis as well, because a lot of them are in uh, product led growth companies, right? Where the product itself, even if the product is for developers, is the thing is the engine that drives revenue. Um, and I guess the the what you're focusing on is how to execute on product-led growth right yeah yeah like i i really think like i i'm i'm a massive advocate for for kind of product-led growth you really have to think about what your customers want um, and that's why the name ux dx so ux is the user experience dx is the developer experience and it's kind of mel melding the two of those together because it's neither one is going to um improve things for you you need to be focusing on what works for your customers, but then what works for your internal team as well. And that's the kind of the idea that if we can meld the two of those and figure out a process that works, then, then it will be fantastic. So to, to your point about the product-led growth, I'm a massive advocate of kind of really understanding your, your customer problem. And then if you do that, even if you are marketing or even if you are sales kind of heavy, 
having that understanding just across the teams means that you're not going to end up in those situations where you just get blindsided by sales coming along and saying, oh, we just sold this kind of feature to somebody. Um, because once your kind of team is very user focused and you, you should be seeing the same problems and you should be using sales and marketing and other people as a source of information in the product team for what the needs in the market are. So so it's kind of one of the things that I a massive advocate of product led growth, but I think it's it's complemented by the others. And I think if you can get them all working together, that's that's the sweet spot. <laughs> I think a lot of yeah, and I think a lot of the uh Companies that, that that we talk to, especially when they're selling to developers, of course, have to have an API. And if you design your API too early, you get locked into something that doesn't really work. You see a lot of people with like V2 right in the URL because after a while they've got feedback and now they know how to do their API properly. Uh, any, any advice for developer teams out there building developer products? They know they have to build an API. How do you get it right? How do you how do you how do you solve the API problem? <laughs> My my first reaction when I heard that was just one that I always remember from my um, business analysis days was the business would say, just make it flexible. Like, oh, yes. Just yeah. It, so there you go. it can work in, in whatever happens in the future. And you're like, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> no, so, um, but yes, yeah, so APIs, it, it actually is a massive user experience challenge doing an API because it, it's the same problem that you get whether you're building a product for end customers where you stand at a whiteboard and you design it and you think this is amazing everybody's going to love this like it makes so much sense how we've designed this is perfect um but that kind of saying no no business plan survives first contact with a customer it's the same with an api whether you, you might think that this is the most perfect and flexible and it, it solves the needs or, or whatever. But then when your customers start using it, that's when you really learn what what they want and what they need and, and things will change. So the way I'd advocate for, for kind of how you get a really high quality API is the same way I'd advocate for getting a really high quality end product. Try something small, do like a quick prototype, test it with real users. And that way, you instantly it's 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 so eye-opening every time i do it when it's kind of that that point in your brain and and um i learned some uh i think it was thinking fast and slow the book where it explained that when you're remembering something you're using the same synapses as when you experience it the first time and when you learn something new that creates a new connection in your brain and you literally cannot think about how you thought about it before because your brain is no longer structured that way. So I, I, so many times I've come across new information. I've gone, well, well, of course it has to work this way. It, it couldn't possibly work in any other way. But yet, had, just before I'd learned that information, I was very happy with how it had originally been designed. So doing those like quick little tests help you to get to those like points of understanding and, and clarity and and hopefully we'll get you to a longer V1. I, I don't think you'll ever escape the V2, but it's about <laughs> how, how high quality you can get that V1. So yeah, and, and maybe try to keep the V1 small, right? Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are 
really like to use GraphQL these days because flexibility, right? Literally, that's the, that's the selling point. Uh, but GraphQL kind of scares me. I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on does does it is it actually a help or does it create um, too much flexibility? Well, for me personally, I love it. Uh, use it on our our website. So we we have a very like on the uxdx.com website, we have Airtable as our backend. So okay. I'm not sure if you're cool. familiar with Airtable. Yes. Yeah. Kind of like Excel on steroids is, is how, how I describe it. Um, but it's great because we've tried so many CMSs and they're so clunky, but Airtable is just great um, because it's got the ease of use that people can use it like a, a system. It's a, it's a little bit risky because if people don't know how joins work, they start kind of updating a record instead of creating a new one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but the like those like there's undo and there's all kind of history in Airtable. So I just as a product, I I find that very good. Um and then it's great for the team. It's infinitely faster than the other CMSs that we've used. And then to get that into um into the website. So Airtable specifically says, don't use our site, don't use our product as a backup. <laughs> um, and they rate them as, they have pretty aggressive rate and everything. So what yeah. we do, um, I use Gatsby um, and put a GraphQL layer on top. So it takes a kind of a copy at build time. And I just use GraphQL to place the data on all the different pages. So I personally love it. And I think it gives, if, if we come back to what we're trying to do of get um, teams working better and faster together, there's always going to be probably a layer of platform engineering as the company gets larger. Um, but Rory, I have, I mean, I, I, so I, I have a nasty question though, right? Which is okay. that API is, is that's not a public API though, right? Oh, so sorry. You, yeah, no, the, the GraphQL, no, the, this would be very much an internal yeah. API to be See, shared. What, what happens is often exactly this, right? We're, an internal API has been built, uh, which has lots of, of flexibility and features and capability, but assumes an awful lot of domain knowledge and internal upskilling and all that sort of stuff. And then for business reasons or as, as part of the, the strategy, oh, let's let's make our API public or part of it. And oh, we already have one. There we go. <laughs> you know, stick stick. Yeah. Uh, API uh, gateway in front of it and off you go. <laughs> so, uh, so if you ask me that question now about making it public, I would shy away from GraphQL. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I didn't promise I wasn't trying to trap you. Uh, <laughs> now, internally, I think it's great. And I think it's great for sharing between teams internally because the the big problem with GraphQL is you don't know how people are going to query mm-hmm. it. So you might start getting these crazy expensive queries Um being called by by people that you haven't optimized for um so so i think there's a little bit of a risk with that i think like even though it is more flexible there is something in kind of making it a little bit less flexible it's kind of the the choice paradox that if you give people too much choice they don't choose anything um i i do think there is something that in in product you're not giving the customer everything they ask for. You're giving them what they need. And, and it's a subtle kind of difference there. And I think the same is true with the, an API. You don't just go, oh, here you go. Here's everything. Best of luck. Um, I think you, you need to think a little bit more about what problems are they trying to solve? 
And how can we do that and make it as easy as possible for them to solve that? Yeah, so it, it is the API design, once it becomes part of the product, you have to apply just as much care to it, don't you, as you would for the, the UX of the product. Uh, you can't just take an existing internal API and fling it outside. It's it, it depends on how well you've uh, thought about and designed your internal API. <laughs> um, but but I do think it's it's the the argument is that if you've if you've kind of got a, a front end team or or something that they're using that API, then yeah, that that's great. Let's expose that because they're using it for a website, and somebody else might use it for like I don't know a voice or maybe an AI bot or or something like that. Um, yeah, it's it, it's kind of subtly different. I I think what I've enjoyed seeing is the transition from we have a single API to rule them all to, well, actually, you know what? Mobile needs a slightly different API than desktop because what we're serving to customers, we don't want to give them a fat API where they're getting so much data and it's slowing things down. Um, so that kind of back-end for front-end model, I yeah. think, is, yeah. is quite useful. And then if you kind of translate that then into a public API versus like an internal API, it's kind of, again, thinking about what is the problem I'm trying to solve, or rather that my customers are trying to solve, and how can I help them do that as best and easy as possible? Would it be a good strategy to uh, follow Jeff Bezos's instructions, right? Because when he decided to to turn Amazon into, into AWS, every API had to be externalizable from the word go, right? You had to, even if you were designing an internal API, you, you had to have in the back of your mind that eventually it would become external. Yeah, I, I, I think it's hard to argue against uh, anything that Jeff Bezos has done. <laughs> Could um, all just be luck. Could all just be luck. The results kind of speak for yeah. themselves. I, I think actually with Amazon, I think one of the best things is how many different industries they've tackled and how consistently they they perform well. So it's kind of it's either they are the absolute luckiest company on earth, or there is something in the way that they work. <laughs> the DX of their APIs leaves a lot to be desired, though. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And, and just even like if you if you just argue from a, a design perspective, Amazon.com almost looks like they've they haven't invested over invested in their design, but they're to me they're solving the problem as effectively as they can without necessarily looking at the the kind of making it super useful it's kind of how effective effectiveness mm. over usability in isn't a way it, isn't it sort of the exception that proves the rule in that people got used to the 1990s design of amazon and there's a literally literally any change will reduce revenue so you can't change it. You can't really change it. Yeah, yeah. There is there's always that risk, and that then leaves a space for an incumbent or sorry, a startup to to tackle the incumbents. And that's the kind of the the traditional like the incumbent mm. becomes too big and bloated and slow. Reddit, um, actually, the the CTO spoke about that very problem at UXCX a few years ago, and he was saying that with Reddit they had this very ugly 1990s look, and they knew they wanted to modernize it, but literally every change they made, <laughs> it, it was just uproar. I know. And, I know. And he 
he recognized though that if they didn't that they would become susceptible to to being kind of replaced by a, a fancier and a slicker one so instead of doing the big redesign that a lot of companies do they just sliced away at it so yeah, they yeah. just kind of would make little incremental improvements and people would kind of the the backlash wasn't as severe when they would just do little changes and then um yeah they they managed to, to kind of push through their their redesign it's kind of a it's it, it's a nice problem to have though really isn't it <laughs> <laughs> you have a use you have a, such a dedicated user base they'll complain if you make changes yeah and and it's kind of the i remember that with i worked with a software way back at the start of my career kind of called siebel which was a crm system and they were upgrading from a desktop to a web-based application. And the challenges were the super users were so quick at using all the shortcuts and everything and navigating around the application that it became, they were the biggest detractors of an upgrade. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it was much easier to train a new person on the new version, but the super users uh, really struggled because things were just moving around and changes. Speaking, I mean, speaking of super users, I don't know if you have you ever come across a uh, an email startup called Superhuman.com. Um, I've I've heard of them. Um, I I'm not I'm not one of the subscribers, but I, I see it every so often because it's yeah. like the iPhone. It's got that little tag at the bottom of the emails, like sent. <laughs> yeah, no. I I use it. Um, so the, their their kind of gimmick is that um, absolutely everything has key key keyboard shortcuts, and you have kind of like an action bar, so you. you Press Control K, I think, and then you just start typing, and it'll find the command that you want. So it's got. It's, I suppose I, you know, I'm an old school dev, right? So I like to use Emacs, and I don't, don't like to use the mouse. So if I can, if I can interact with the computer using the keyboard alone, uh, that kind of floats my boat, and it's designed for that use case, for that kind of high speed interaction. I mean that that's another question, right? So I, I don't know. Can that, you it's, sorry, with Superhuman, just before you you jump off, because that. That's a great case study in products um leg growth. So they yes. they, did, oh, totally. uh, they did a phenomenal kind of there was an article that the CEO wrote a few years back, and it was about how they ditched NPS as a metric and their their metric was would you be upset if we shut it down? And that that was the question. Oh yeah. I would be, yeah. Yeah. And and what they found was that they had people kind of in it with most companies you'll have it you'll have your your kind of your spectrum you'll have your your people who love it you'll have the people who'd be like meh couldn't doesn't really bother me that much and um so what a lot of companies would do there is they go okay we've got the super users they're not leaving what are the problems we can solve for these people who are going meh and they did the opposite they said okay these people Let's just drop them. They're probably going to churn anyway. Let's just focus on the super users and let's just keep improving and improving it for them. So it was kind of an interesting approach because you think that maybe you're limiting the market, but where they were going and the growth that they were on, they were saying, let's just absolutely nail it for the super users and then we'll come back and maybe tackle the the wider market. Yeah, and maybe something else that's really interesting. You hand over your money, but you still can't use the software until you've done a 30-minute online training course wow. live with it, with a one-on-one right training course. <laughs> don't scale. <laughs> uh, absolutely, right? But at the same time, uh, you know, when you come out of that, you, you, then you, it's really, it's great value for money because you can 
fly through your email. Uh, I mean, I, I only use 5% of the features. Um, uh, but it, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting how there's not one right way to do user experience, right? It, if you tune it to your overall product strategy, um, it's kind of it's kind of an input that you can adjust, right? And that's a perfect example. Um, yeah, where you and, just focus on power users, and that's one of the the things as well. So when it came back to like I, I used to work consulting, and my job was to try and implement these kind of product teams and implement these um, empowered kind of autonomous teams that could go off and deliver in the way that Amazon have structured their internal teams. And it was always kind of a struggle. And one of the big challenges that you would face. So yes, the skills is is something that can be worked on, but but that's a fairly easy one to solve. So we can train people on how to do customer interviews and to uncover those kind of challenges and pain points that, that customers are facing and, and be able to, to fix that. So the skills wasn't really the hard bit. The hard bit was convincing management okay, let's let the team do this. Let's let them decide what to build. Let them talk to the customers, figure out what to build. And what would come back would be this kind of fear of, well, what if they build something crazy? Or what if they go off in the wrong direction? And um, the example I always think of is I worked at two airlines, Aer Lingus and Ryanair, and they're they're targeted different market. Like Aer Lingus is a value carrier. They're, They're high quality great experience on board. Ryanair is just low price. Don't expect anything else. Yeah. Um, and they had the same middle seat problem that you don't want to sit on the middle seat on a flight. Nobody likes it. No. So Aer Lingus said, well, you can buy an empty middle seat. So you pay a little bit more and we'll guarantee that the seat beside you is empty. And, and Ryanair said, you're in the middle seat unless you pay to get out of it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's too... <laughs> It's the same product in a way, but it's very different. Now, the fear, if you're a management and you're going, well, we have a brand and we have a product vision and we have all of this. Now, imagine we let our developers go off and they implemented the wrong one of those two approaches in in the opposite company, if if you if you know what I mean. Um, That's kind of one of the big fears. And that's I mean, isn't that isn't that a valid? It's that's I mean, that feels like a valid fear. Yes, yeah, and it's it's kind of how do you convince somebody, um, and 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 it comes down to context. So senior management have much wider context of the broader company, whereas somebody in a team often has a very narrow view of what's happening. They they know the little bit of the product that they're working on. Um, so the solution is that you share that context. And, and there's two two kind of arguments for how you structure things. You, you do information up or you do information down. And, and what I mean by that is the teams closest to the customers see all the problems and then they report that up and that gets escalated until hopefully somebody senior decides, okay, we'll fix this and then tells the teams, go build some feature to fix this. And the opposite is you get the context to come down so that the management tell the teams this is our vision for the product. This is our current strategy. We're going after this market segment. We're going after this geography. We're going after whatever the the kind of the the current strategy is. Could be cost cutting. Could be revenue generation. Um, and then these are your objectives. 
So give all the teams the context so that they're not going to make that stupid mistake, that they're going to say, okay, well, our strategy is going after business customers. We're not going to piss off a business customer and put them in the middle seat. We're, we're going to have to make this as luxurious and kind of high quality experience. Um, so that's that's the route that we advocate is that you need your product people to really be doing an inspiring vision and inspiring mission for the product to get people excited about what they're building and then share that context of the strategy and the objectives. One, now that gives me, <laughs> that gives me a good segue into another topic that I wanted to ask you about, which was community building. Um, because it strikes me that a great way to build context uh, at all levels in an organization is to participate in the community built around that product. Um, and again, in the world of developer relations and developer-focused products, uh, community is a big deal, right? Because developers love to be in communities and it's part of the way that people learn about you. Uh, how, how, what's your experience been building a community around a conference? Which is a slightly different problem, but I, I'm kind of curious about how you how you've gone about that and where where you're going to take it. Yeah, it's a it's a challenge. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't think I think I've often heard people say, "Oh, we'll build this kind of community and it'll be great, and we'll get all this business from it." And you kind of under, underestimate how much a community is. It's more you might get something out of it as a side effect, but you shouldn't go in expecting that. You should go in kind of saying. What's the problem? Same way with product development. What's the problem that your community is having and how can you help solve that? So the way we've tackled it, and we're still learning. Every, I, I don't know if any, anybody has really got community building down pat, but um, we, we try to tackle it in a few different ways. So one is we really want to help the people who care about cross-functional work, but often in a company, you might be, a developer, so you have very little experience or understanding about what is the work that a product manager does or what how do researchers do their research. So it's a little bit of a black box, what other people do. Yeah. So how we structure our newsletter is we have five sections for five different parts of the, the, the flow. So you might only be kind of, you might join as a developer and go, okay, I'll just read the developer sections. But every week you're going to keep seeing, well, here's what's happening in product. Here's what's happening in UX. Here's what's happening in design. And what I've spoken to a few developers and they've kind of said, they actually don't even care about the developer side of our conference anymore. They come to learn about product and UX because that's where they see that they can learn and upskill the yeah. most. Totally. I, that's what I love about your conference, actually. <laughs> For me, uh, absolutely, right? There's, there's any number of, like, you know, developer conferences with code, but what you guys do is, is teach us about the rest of the org. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah, and, and to me, the most frustrating thing ever was when I'd work on something and either it would get shelved without being released or it would release and it didn't really you knew because there were so many change requests that didn't get approved or things that happened at the end that that just the product wasn't quite where it was at and that's what i i i'm trying to solve that feeling of feeling terrible at the end of a project because i felt it and i don't want other people to have to feel that so so that's where it's kind of you can solve the problem and if the developers really understand because with that what i just said about the context the developers really need to take that on board of really understanding the context if they're to be trusted to build the features. So, so anyway, yeah. 
Um, so that was the the kind of the newsletter. But we also we realized that we didn't want it to be a one way communication because that's not a community. No, a community is two way communication. So we've tried a few different things over the years. Um, we did physical roadshow of meetups. And what we'd do there is we'd bring, we'd do a half day. It wasn't quite a, a traditional meetup of like an hour or two after work. We did a half day conference and we'd bring it to like 10 cities around Europe. And that was fantastic because that got people kind of half the, the time was the talks, but the other half was the networking and getting to know people and the questions and all of that kind of stuff of people hearing about something and then delving a bit deeper to understand it a bit more so we we found that phenomenal unfortunately covid came along and uh put us <laughs> but but we're we're going to start that up again we we've been a little bit slow um to to get it started again a little bit hesitant to make sure covid's really not coming back um but but yeah we're going to definitely kick that off because that was that was phenomenal from a people would come to the conference afterwards and it's kind of like a camaraderie already just from that little kind of events and people love physical engagements is, yeah, is what I yeah. kind of found from that. Um, and, and then the opposite of what I'm about to say there is the no physical engagement. We do a Slack community as well. Um, and the idea here is that one of the channels in there is ask the speakers because we do a lot of different talks and we, we always have people kind of you never have enough time for Q&A after a talk. The Q&A could go on for longer than no, the talk no, no, in many no. cases. So the idea is let's capture the questions there because then there's a bit of posterity to it as well where people can go back and and see what was happening and what questions were asked and things like that. So that was one of the ways of, again, it's trying to solve the problem of what are people, um, what are the problems people have and how can we help them solve it? And but but aligned to what what we're doing so that's how we said okay well let's build a community around our speakers and the talks they're giving and how that they how they can help solve the problems that everybody else out there is having it feels like you have a, a double challenge right because building a community around a conference or a series of conferences which are point in time events you know how do you sustain that then between events and then the second one is your your community is cross-functional by definition. Uh, it is easier to build a community with a highly focused niche interest, um, but you're trying to bring people from different parts of the organization that share this vision of uh, product development. Um, but it, it does sound like when you get the right people in the room, it is actually quite strong because... Uh, if people care passionately about this stuff, um, it's it's it, it's something that can really bring them together because they they are often quite frustrated in their organizations. Yeah, yeah. They, there is a kind of like I, I've often thought, oh, we should just focus in some area because it'd be so much easier <laughs> than trying to get this cross-functional. Um, because as to your point, the niche I believe is easier to build a community around. Um, but what I found is there's there's a saying by I think it was Deming said a, a a bad system beats a good person every time. And what he means by that is you might be the most skilled person ever, but you're only going to move as quickly or as as effectively as the system that you're working within. And it takes people a few years in their career to kind of see that. Um, so that's why again, 
our audience skews a little bit kind of more experienced uh, because it's the people who who recognize that okay i've I've built my craft like I I know how to do my craft to a degree now I need to figure out how I can be more effective. So we we are a little bit selecting not just purely for like um if if I look at some other places I can see okay they're really targeting junior developers or they're targeting kind of particular areas whereas we're we're more senior who are looking at if I can think about the entire system I can try figure out how I can get better products built and that kind of thing. So it it naturally, while it does seem like it's difficult from a cross-functional perspective, it is appealing to those people who are thinking more process and more organization design and those kind of things of how can I actually get things done effectively. Rory, that is, uh, I think, a great place to wrap things up. Certainly from a developer relations perspective, where we are dealing with cross-functional issues the whole time, uh, UXDX is kind of a kind of a hidden gem. Lots and lots of interesting stuff to learn, for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgate.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgate.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at Voxgate. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.